I just spoke with somebody in the Bernie's campaign who told me of all the quote, what do they call them, Tina? The campaign obituaries of, of yeah, all uh, of the obituaries that have been out there, including Politico and Michael Tracy did one based on, you know, his stupid thoughts. He blamed Bernie being, you know, engaging with the woke culture for his demise, even though he probably didn't interview anyone with Bernie's campaign. But I digress. Um, exactly. Somebody from Bernie's. I guarantee you. Somebody from Bernie's campaign told me this is the most accurate uh, representation, and that person was pretty high up. So I actually think it's important to go through this today uh, because there's important progressive races tomorrow. Uh, so if we don't learn the mistakes of uh, on the national level running for president, uh, progressive candidates. Uh, running for Senate, Congress are, are pretty much doomed. So I'm not going to read the whole story, but but the major part, parts. Basically, what I did with the Bernie campaign is, you know, I covered the campaign in the field. So I kind of knew what I thought had gone right, had gone wrong. Uh, but at the end of the day, you want to talk to as many people as you can. Uh, some people have motives, so you don't know what they're saying is exactly what happened. It's their picture of what happened. And then some people that have been your sources for years, you just trust because they've never steered you wrong. So let me, I'm going to skip around because I'm not going to read the whole thing. Let's go right to what I think was the first, the first reason. Uh, I mean, to me, and it, you know, Michael Tracy and others say, stop blaming the media. You can't tell the story of Bernie's downfall without the media being one or two. It's not the sole reason he lost, but it's very high up there. Uh, because the bottom line is, you do not you're facing multiple super PACs, but the biggest super PAC is CNN, MSNBC, the New York yeah. Times, the Washington Post. It was unrelenting, particularly in that period of time between uh, the Nevada victory for Bernie, where Chris Matthews was, you know, losing his shit. It's like the Germans invading Paris. I, uh, and, <laughs> and uh, you know, everybody's, you know, losing their mind that Bernie might be the front runner. And then Bernie says something quasi nice about Fidel Castro and everybody loses their mind. That's all earned uh, free media. Then Biden wins a uh, declare a, a, a huge victory. And Obama, knowing that the media will be behind him, gets all the ducks in a row. Amy drops out. Pete drops out. The exit polls show. I mean, Biden did not have those voters. A lot of his voters did not decide until those days before Super Tuesday. Yep. Almost $100 million in free advertising definitely played a role. But let me tell you what else played a role. And Tina, you could affirm if you heard some of these things. So for those that don't know, Jeff Weaver was the campaign manager in 2016. He was Bernie's longest tenured um, advisor, gopher, drove him around in the 1980s when Bernie ran for governor of Vermont, then mayor of Burlington. But Weaver was a problem uh, dating back to 2016. Uh, so let me read you. And he became a problem in 2020 despite him not formally having the title of campaign manager. So let me read you uh, some of this. Quote, when you have been on the outside for so long and you've seen lots of people in D.C. that don't share your values, for whatever reason, over time, what's rewarded is loyalty, not competence. A high-level uh, staffer from Bernie 2020 campaign uh, who spoke on the condition of anonymity in order to speak frankly told status quo. Actually, people who are competent, who try to bring up problems and try to say, hey, we need to do this differently or do that differently, they get pushed out. So what that staffer was talking about, Tina, was Bernie yeah. tended to surround himself with the Jeff Weavers of the world and many others that didn't really have an expertise on their like running a campaign, 
television advertising, paid organizing. He was just right. comfortable with them. And by the way, before people get triggered, yes, the majority of the sources were anonymous. If the new standard is going to be everybody has to be on the record, nothing will get printed ever because people people do not want to jeopardize their current jobs or their future spaces in the progressive yeah. movement. So I didn't get a lot of people on the record, but trust me, they were high level people. Uh, did you get that sense? I, yeah, no, I can confer with everything you just said is true. Uh, from what I saw being on the road with the campaign following around is there are two fractions that were involved. There, there, were the, there was the Jeff Weaver side and then there was the grassroots size and grassroots side, and they seem to be not in step with each other. And there was definitely some inner problems that I witnessed firsthand. So I would agree with what you just said entirely. So to go a little further, uh, through conversations with staffers and organizers, one name who continually popped up was Weaver, uh, Sanders' longest tenured political ally. Um, quote, he, he has trusted Jeff for a very long time, even though Jeff has shown himself to not always be trustworthy, a high-level campaign staffer told me. Bernie and Jane are not the best managers, to be honest. They don't want to get mired down into how you actually execute things and make them happen. They, tone, they turn over and over again to Jeff to be the only one who they put their trust in and sort everything out. And I think that part was important, Tina, because it's not, it's not, I don't think anyone I spoke to was saying Bernie or Jane were like bad politicians. Obviously they weren't because right. they broke all sorts of records and fundraising and enthusiasm. But there's a difference between inspiring, giving a hell of a speech, um, bringing in young people, and like the X's and O's and execution. And I have, I right. have heard from more than one person, we're talking lots of people, Bernie wasn't big on like the details. You know, he, he left that right. mainly to the people he knew and was comfortable with, which was Jeff Weaver, uh, which again, a lot of people complained in 2016. You remember that whole fracas where like eight to 10 people resigned immediately from our revolution because they had been promised Jeff Weaver is not going to be running it. And then Bernie brought in Jeff Weaver to run it. So they resigned. Uh, so let me read a little bit further. Jordan, the reason why I think is important too. Jeff Weaver was interested in bringing billionaire dollar money and he's doing the same thing now with a super PAC for Biden. So yes. So the problem is the grassroots faction sees a lot of what Jeff Weaver is trying to do is flying in the face of what Bernie Sanders values and what his principles are. And I think that's an, I think that's a very salient uh, criticism. Right. Um, the loyalty to a fault towards Weaver became a point of contention uh, directly after the 2016 camp campaign when eight of the founding staffers for Sanders inspired group Our Revelation, Our Revolution resigned when Weaver was revealed to be the president of the new organization, despite Bernie previously promising Weaver wouldn't be. In addition to these staffers having issues with Weaver's management of the 2016 campaign, they also oppose Weaver's desire and intention to accept unlimited contributions from big, me big money mega donors, a direct violation of Sanders' 40-year political mantra. Weaver filed to make our revolution a 501c4 in order to target big money from the likes of billionaire Tom Steyer, billionaires like Tom Steyer and George Soros, two sources familiar with Weaver's objectives, told status quo. But in doing so, it made, made it impossible for Bernie to be involved with our revolution, considering congressional ethics rules forbids lawmakers from being involved with 501c4 organizations. Although some have claimed Bernie agreed with Weaver and sought to raise money from billionaires, status quo learned through multiple sources involved with our revolution's early stages that Bernie himself was frankly out of the loop. 
and his depth of understanding in terms of what Weaver was trying to do. When Bernie learned of Weaver's desire to accept big money donors, Bernie nixed that idea, two sources confirmed to status quo. In addition, the founding board of our revolution told Weaver they wouldn't accept any independent expenditures specifically for candidates. Donations would be for general purposes. Uh, it also mandated any donation over $5,000 would have to come to the board for approval. Uh, in 2019, the group took donations over five, the group took just six donations over $5,000, The Intercept reported. Quote, Bernie backed us up. He never supported getting money from billionaires. A high level, our revolution source told status quo in regards to Bernie agreeing that the group shouldn't be accepting mega, don mega donor money. The source also noted Bernie didn't have any direct involvement with our revolution. Weaver's short-lived tenure with our revolution is important to understand when fast-forwarding to 2020, knowing that he couldn't, knowing that Bernie, Bernie know, knew, knowing that he couldn't convince 2016 staffers to come back with Weaver at the helm, Sanders hired the ACLU's Fez Shakir to run the campaign. Despite Fez coming on to run the campaign, Weaver still had a front seat at the table for all major strategic decisions, according to a high-level staffer we spoke with. Weaver's role was especially prominent in the early period of the campaign when Shakir, who had never run a political campaign before, deferred to Weaver for guidance on things he simply didn't know. This popped as a red flag to some high-level staffers on the 2020 campaign, considering Weaver was widely condemned by 2016 staffers for mismanagement and faulty strategy. Jeff's management style turned off many 2016 staff staffers. It consisted of a top-down approach disinterested in hearing other staffers' views. Quote, Jeff's views was like, hey, we're running a military operation. I just made a call, and that's, and that's what we're going to do, one staffer told status quo. Strategically, many staffers from 2016 argued with Weaver over his championing of a more traditional, heavy TV advertisement approach over investing more heavily in a robust paid organizing operation. With the concern over a 2016 sequel, many returning staffers from the campaign from 2016 were optimistic when Shakir was named campaign manager. Unfortunately for them, Sanders' loyalty to Weaver still loomed large. Quote, Jeff was a de facto second campaign manager. Almost every major decision had to be made by both Jeff and Fez together, which did not make things function smoothly. All right, so there's a lot to unpack there, Tina. So I want to start with the Our Revolution bit. Because some people, uh, and I'm just going to name names, like Nick Brana. You know, Nick Brana, for example, went on Jimmy's show, said that he had a front seat table at Our Revolution during the Our Revolution revolt, and that, you know, Bernie was totally on board with Weaver accepting big money contributions. Bernie was totally on board with taking billionaires' money. I know for some, it's been kind of in vogue to just like, let's just shit on Bernie. He's a sellout, he's a fraud. Um, but I also think you need to have your facts right. I mean, I spoke with like five or six people at our revolution. I'm not saying Nick is lying, he's just not right. I mean, that's just not correct. So in my experience, I don't wanna say Bernie is like a confused old man, but again, he's not like well steeped, he's very well steeped into Medicare for all. He's very well steeped on these policies, not very well steeped into like, what we're Politics. what we're uh, classifying yeah. our revolution as the difference between 501 this and 501 that blah 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 right. uh, but there was no like Bernie telling staffers yeah we're gonna go get Jeff's George no. Soros's money and 
Tom Steyer's money and all these people's money, he basically just let Jeff handle it uh, because right. he was still the, the idea for our, our revolution came up like during the 2016 campaign. So that was just not the case. I think it's important to say that because, you know, some people have been going on like people's shows with very large audiences. You get headlines like Bernie sought billionaires money and it's just not true. So uh, I read you that. Uh, Shakir as 1A to Weaver's 1B did not included a considerable stretch of time in the spring and summer of 2019, i.e. like the early parts of the campaign, where Weaver still had hiring and spending authority without consulting Shakir. Quote, we would just find out, oh, we never hired a single staffer in North Carolina until after Iowa, but for some reason we had named an Oklahoma state director. Jeff just like hired them. He had the authority to do random stuff like that, and Fez would find out afterwards. So obviously that's not a good dynamic where the former campaign manager all these people had a problem with is like hiring in Oklahoma before North Carolina, which is on Super Tuesday. Uh, That makes no sense, yeah. In some ways, it sounds like Weaver's trying to make himself feel important still because he got edged out. He probably wanted to come back as campaign manager. Uh, Then you have... Um, multiple staffers who witnessed the flawed dynamic at the top said it took Shakir a while to gain Bernie's full trust. When that happened, Shakir took more control and became the clear campaign manager, traveling on the road with Sander, Sanders. Uh, their relationship got particularly strong after Bernie's heart attack. So, Tina, this part of the story, to me, I think is like one of the biggest core news nuggets here. Uh, some Bernie people on Facebook and Reddit thought I was like it was a hit piece, but like this is what his highest level people told me, so I could only tell you what I was told. You can bring the conversation to what I saw here locally, even here in California. Folks need to understand that not everything that was in the Bernie Sanders campaign staff, not everyone was part of the movement. A lot of these folks are paid political consultants. They're hired to do a job. They did their jobs, but that doesn't mean that they're loyal to Bernie Sanders' values, principles, or to the movement itself. So I think there was a tension that clearly existed between folks that were really dedicated to the movement because they did hire some grassroots uh, folks and activists. They did staff with some of those folks. And then the political consultants that were never gonna be about what these folks were about, right? They were butting their heads, I saw it myself. Um, I think it sort of reached a crescendo at one point when, when the paid political consultants became way too worried about what the establishment thought of them, what the mainstream media thought of them, because the grassroots folks over here cared more about the policies, they cared more about giving a voice to people that don't have a voice currently, and they saw Bernie as the one guy that was able to do that, right? Well, these folks didn't care about that stuff. They only cared about winning an election. And um, I'll tell you point blank, I was at a Bernie Sanders fundraiser, and one of his staff actually said to me, and another activist that was standing next to me that I had just interviewed, be prepared to support whoever the Democratic nominee is if it's not Bernie. Who says that if you're working for a specific candidate while you're still in the throes of the campaign? I was really like, wow, that's that's not a good look, right? So that's the kind of stuff that was going on internally, I think, that was driving this divide. And it, it proved to be more problematic than it should have been because I don't think it was ever squelched. Right. Absolutely. Let's get to Bernie's magical thinking, which is not my quote. It's one of his uh, staffers. Uh, for all, and by the way, folks, just to be clear, like, no offense to the janitors, I didn't talk to the janitors. Like, these are the top people. I'll leave, you know, so the information is very reliable. 
For all of Bernie's rhetorical gifts and points for authenticity, execution and unwillingness to change in the face of new circumstances ultimately doomed his presidential hopes, several staffers agreed. Quote, I think that almost everyone wanted to get Bernie to more aggressively contrast with Biden, but Bernie did not want to do it, a high-level staffer told Status Quo. Although Shakir, Weaver, and others did advise Bernie to draw a stronger contrast with Biden, they failed to tell Sanders aggressively enough that he needed to challenge Biden. Quote, the people at the top of the campaign consistently did not tell Bernie what he didn't want to hear. David Sirota, the campaign's chief speechwriter and senior advisor, conceded to status quo that there were times the senior leadership needed to push Bernie more. Quote, sometimes we lacked a solidarity that may have been more successful. If we all thought an idea was a good idea, it would have been better for us all together to say that to Bernie rather than one or two people trying to throw a Hail Mary pass with Bernie. Uh, another negative pattern among campaign leadership was allowing Sanders to believe in, quote, magical thinking, uh, one high-level staffer told us. Part of this negative wizardry was the claim that the campaign had over one million volunteers, which three top-level staffers with the campaign confirmed to status quo was not the case. Although the claim didn't seem to be an intentional falsehood told by Bernie, it was indeed false. Multiple organizers we spoke to said the campaign never had over a million volunteers, Bernie counted one million people responding to emails and text messages with an affirmative, I'm with Bernie, as the same thing as having one million volunteers, even though that doesn't, that's not the same thing as having one million people signed up to actively phone bank, work rallies, canvas, etc. Quote, nobody ever wanted to tell Bernie, hey, we don't actually have a million volunteers, a source told status quo, leading to Sanders making the claim across the campaign trail. That falsehood, falsehood led Bernie to stubbornly resist hiring more paid staffers in Iowa, demanding that the campaign lean on its army of volunteers, despite that army being smaller than Bernie realized. So this is another uh, point. And I think some people, Tina, will latch on to this. Oh, yeah. Bernie is a, you know, a fraud and a liar and this, that, and the other thing. To be honest with you, I don't think Bernie Sanders is a liar. I genuinely think he's a 78-year-old guy who was like, oh, a million people responded? We got a million volunteers. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. But right. I, I know. Well, I there's a difference between a million people saying, yes, I'm with you. I'm downloading the Burn app, et cetera, and then actually signing up to do phone banking, right? Those are those that next level of dedication is what was really going to be required, right? So these are folks that are going to go on Canvas, knock on doors, sit down you know, twice a week and, and do, use the Bernie dialer. Obviously, not everybody that said, yes, I have this enthusiasm for you, were willing to make that second right. step, right? So that makes sense to me. So I, I think what's important here is, and, you know, honestly, I, I'm not, you know, I try not to be an ageist, but part of this is when you have somebody like Bernie, who's been in D.C. for so long, is so passionate about the, um, the policies, uh, you know, making things more equal economically, racially, this right. and that but he's not like an amazing politician. He doesn't really get, you know, just like the example with our revolution where he didn't really understand like what, how it was being set up, the details like that. Yeah. I heard many times on the campaign trail from staffers that like Bernie doesn't like to get involved in the details. So like yeah, he- that's clear. He, and he, like I was at the rallies, you, like he was boasting, we got over a million volunteers. I was reporting that, why would I think why would I think anything other? And it gives you a false sense of security that, as a journalist, but also maybe a volunteer or people in the Bernie wing, 
well, it doesn't matter how much the establishment throws at us because we have the people power on the ground. Now, they obviously had way more volunteers than Biden, who didn't even oh, have like more, yeah. didn't even have offices in half of these states that he won on Super Tuesday. Yeah, hell, Biden never campaigned in the state of California. He didn't even show up to KDEM to talk to the delegates. Right. I mean, but but the problem is like as I'm about to show you, part of that magical thinking that we have a million volunteers made Bernie say, "Well, let's not hire more paid staffers." That's the problem. So yeah. let me read uh, more of that part so you guys understand that. Um, one top campaign official uh, told Status Quo that in retrospect, they would have hired more paid phone bankers and canvassers for early states and key Super Tuesday states. In real time, this proved difficult when some periods of the campaign had more money pouring in than others. Quote, we were pretty damn tight on margins, the official said about finances for the campaign in November and December, before a surge in donations came at the end of January and mid-February, a point in the campaign that didn't leave enough time to hire, train, and effectively deploy enough paid organizers on the ground for two Super Tuesday states. Another aspect of Sanders' push to rely on volunteers was his anxiety and aversion to having, quote, too many mouths to feed, one high-level staffer told Status Quo, which is not the first time I heard that. He was having a conniption in 2016 about the amount of staff they had, uh, about because not because he's cheap, but because it's a lot of pressure to keep bringing in that ma- amount of donations to keep people staffed, keep the you know keep money for obviously you need money for benefits. It was a unionized staff, those kind of things. So him and Jane in 2021, sore spot. Both Sanders and his wife, Jane, expressed to senior leadership was the number of advanced staffers, which are the campaign workers who plan ahead and day of for rallies across the country. Quote, Bernie and Jane said there are too many staff, uh, a senior level staffer told Status Quo, recounting that the campaign then started trying to hide the amount of staff that were working on the rallies. Sanders then asked for non-advanced staffers in key states to be pulled away from their duties to organize and work the rallies. This caused chaos since these staffers didn't know how to run rallies as well as paid advanced staffers. When these staffers were pulled away from their their roles to work rallies, it led to less doors being knocked on and field events occurring, leading Sanders to grow frustrated, demanding why, to know why. So one staffer put it to me, well, you canceled all the field events so that the field staff can go staff your rally. And that person said it with a bit of an attitude. Uh, Sanders spokesperson didn't provide on the record comments on these uh, on the claim regarding one million volunteers or other reporting. To be fair, Sanders spokesperson said he was going to respond with comments. Then he didn't. So I don't know. Maybe they had a change of heart. The over-reliance on a volunteer army not as large as Bernie thought also served as the rationale behind what several paid organizers told us was the fatal decision to over-rely on the distributed organizing model, a model that delegates a model that delegates organizing largely to campaign volunteers. Paid organizers for the campaign that worked in Iowa, Nevada, South Carolina, and Michigan told Status Quo that in states the campaign invested in a strong network of paid organizers, Sanders won. In some cases, by very narrow margins, where that organizing and community building made the difference. Iowa is definitely one of them. In Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, and California, the campaign invested heavily in deep organizing, and that investment paid off. A letter sent to Status Quo signed by four paid campaign organizers said, uh, let me just read part of this letter that they sent to me. In Iowa alone, there were well over 150 organizers, and that team was able to build an organization that knocked on almost 500,000 doors in a state of 3 million people. 
Iowa's constituency organizing program won crucial satellite locations. In Nevada, the team won the Las Vegas Strip caucus despite anti-Medicare for all fear-mongering. There was a large campus organizing program with organizers relentlessly working almost every university available from big state schools to small community colleges. Despite all this, we did not win blowout victories in these states. Almost all our victories were won within a narrow margin. In these cases, it was the existence of a robust field program that accounted for those wins. And Tina, I mean, yes, volunteers are helpful in all campaigns, but volunteers are volunteers and paid organizers are doing this 24 seven. They generally, most of the time have a little bit experience at other campaigns. And I don't wanna say they're better, but they're just, they have more experience, I would say. So uh, nonetheless, one high level staffer acknowledged that Bernie's magical thinking on a historic youth voter surge hamstrung the campaign. Quote, Bernie created wildly unrealistic expectations for a huge youth surge. Like in other areas, the rhetoric didn't match the investment. Early on, the campaign hired just three staffers to focus on the youth vote and organizing. Paid organizers weren't hired for college campuses until midway through the fall semester in Iowa or New Hampshire at a time when Pete Buttigieg's campaign was swarming college campuses. Quote, excuse me, there was at least one student organizer in Iowa by the beginning of the fall, but the campaign hadn't hired most of the organizers until midway through the semester. The same situation played out in New Hampshire and Nevada. For, two, for two, Super Tuesday states, overall staffing came fairly late in the fall of 2019, with the majority being staffed up after the Iowa caucus. California had a few dozen staff, while Texas, the second large delegate hall on Super Tuesday, had five total staffers. Quote, you cannot run the state of Texas with five people. I mean, that's just bad. You can only do that if you're Biden and you're part of the establishment and they're all gonna rally behind you eventually, including to tie that into your first point on the media. I think when you're running a grassroots campaign and you're not getting the mainstream media behind you talking about you, you don't have the establishment wing of the party supporting you, all of this other stuff matters 10,000 times more. It's necessary, you know, you've gotta get the word out. And I think it explains why Pete did so well better than I anticipated he would be doing in those first couple of elections. Right. And in fact, it was interesting to me, I'd be curious to what your thoughts on this, Jordan, is. It was interesting to me that that Biden was chosen as the golden child because really, in my opinion, he's the worst one out of all of them. He's in clear cognitive decline. We can make a list of problems he has policy-wise. But Pete had some decent amount. I don't like Pete. I think his policies are terrible. But I, I think he did have a decent amount of support, like real support out there. Yeah. I mean, Pete basically is why Biden came in, what, what was it, fourth place in Iowa, fifth place in New Hampshire? Yeah, right. Uh, so why would they consolidate around somebody like Pete? And like that part of the equation, I'm still not really clearing on the thinking on, thinking on that because I think Pete, Pete would have had a better chance of beating Trump in the fall, in my opinion. Right. So obviously the big debate is, did Bernie take off the glove? Should he take off the gloves? Should he have not taken off the gloves? I spoke with multiple people on his campaign that had different views, um, but... Overall, I think it's, I found out a little bit more into the psychology of why Bernie uh, didn't want to burn down the house, so to speak. So uh, let's read this part. Um, one staffer said, it did not help us for Bernie to be seen as critical of the Democratic Party. One high level staffer on the campaign told status quo, equating it with Hillary Clinton calling Trump supporters deplorables. Quote, 
Like, don't insult the voters. There are a lot of people who actually do support Medicare for all, but who they identify with the blue team and they see the rhetoric about criticizing the establishment as they are being personally attacked, which the media certainly framed it that way, that Bernie was attacking older black voters as establishment and that kind of thing. Another sore spot was the campaign's embracing of the, quote, no middle ground messaging, which one high-level staffer told Status Quo would made older, more traditional voters queasy. Are you saying I'm extreme, I'm crazy, I'm on the fringe when we could have an FDR second Bill of Rights type message? Uh, that I agree with. I don't know why they didn't pull from FDR more. You got Joe, Joe Biden is now quoting from FDR. Makes me want to vomit. Uh, but Sirota doesn't buy this argument. Quote, I don't see any evidence of that at all, uh, Sirota said. I don't believe that Bernie juxtaposing himself with the party establishment hurt him at all. I do not believe that there's a giant segment of voters who love the Democratic establishment. That includes independents and a large segment of identified Democratic voters who don't love the Democratic establishment. Had Bernie not drawn that contrast, he might not have performed as well among independents. Uh, that's Sirota. Uh, Sirota thinks progressives going forward can learn from Bernie's campaign's failures to win the relatively new and insidious electability argument by showing, not telling. Uh, on contrast, Sirota said if it were up to him, Sanders would have pounded home Biden's electoral vulnerabilities. Uh, despite conflicting views among campaign staffers on, wh on whether Bernie should have taken on the establishment, one thing is clear. Bernie's criticisms of the Democratic establishment, particularly in the brief moment when he was the front runner after Nevada, allowed the corporate media uh, the opportunity to frame a narrative of Bernie attacking the voters ahead of the South Carolina primary. Quote, the media absolutely tried to say, you're just attacking old black people, how dare you? A staffer said, they were totally bad faith, but that actually worked and we just walked into that trap. One moment during the campaign that graded at every single staffer I spoke to was Bernie on 60 Minutes uh, walking into the Fidel Castro trap uh, by explaining to Anderson Cooper why Fidel Castro's educational programs for illiterate Cubans was a good thing. Quote, by the way, the person who said this to me was cursing and through the roof. So just adding that context. Quote, Everyone, feeling, everyone was feeling really good. It really felt we could win this thing, and I'm sure Bernie felt it, and probably thought to himself, fuck it, I'm gonna talk about whatever I want. I think there's a little bit of naivete with that, and his political instincts were off. For progressives on Twitter, Sanders' honesty on the nuances of Cuba's education system was a good thing. But for a campaign finally in the driver's seat with a captive older audience watching Sanders on 60 Minutes, it wasn't helpful to take the opportunity to try and educate older misinformed voters on Cuba. Quote, Bernie was the front runner for a week and decided to use that time to get into a whole scandal about Fidel Castro. Was that the best thing that he could have done? It's not helpful, the idea here is to win. Quote, all you could do is set the guy up to succeed, another high level staffer told me. We picked 60 minutes the night after we crush it in Nevada. That's all done with strategic intentional purposes. This is the opportunity to say, I'm President Bernie Sanders. Take a look at me. Here's what you could envision. Here's what I would be like, uh, the staffer stressed. Uh, what do you think about all that? So I have, I made mad notes here. I have mixed feelings on that. It, in a lot of ways, I sort of agree with what David Sirota is saying. I don't necessarily think that made or broke the campaign. I think the real problem is, is the, the mainstream media was going to paint that narrative regardless of what Bernie said. They were already committed to that. And I think the problem is 
is, is Bernie Sanders has a really hard time reaching older voters because these are the voters that are 100% tuned into cable news and they're not on YouTube watching videos. What, like when he said during that one debate, go look at the YouTubes, I kind of had to chuckle at that because these are folks that are never going to see this video because the mainstream media is not going to show it. And so they're not exposed to it. So whatever whatever narrative they're hearing from CNN or MSNBC, that's it. That's what they're hearing, right? So he sort of did walk into that Fidel Castro trap. And the unfortunate thing is what Bernie said wasn't wrong. And in fact, Obama had made the same argument. And if he had had a fair hearing on that, that would have been the conversation. But he was never going to get a fair hearing on that. You, you understand what I'm saying? Right. Well... So wrong audience for that rhetoric. I agree with that. And that probably did hurt him. Um, I do, but I, I kind of do agree with what David Sirota is saying. Do you? I honestly, I, I think a few things. Number one, I think this idea that, you know, you can't attack your opponent and like Democratic voters are a bunch of snowflakes. And if you're negative, <laughs> if, you're, if you're too negative, they'll be turned off. I mean, that's just not true. Obama and Hillary, like, you know, bludgeoned each other in 2008. Yeah, yeah some people could argue, well, Obama was acceptable to the establishment. Uh, but you know what? Bernie was the most popular politician. People in this climate wanted to see who's going to be the toughest fighter against Donald Trump. So I think that Bernie could have went further. Uh, what I think mm -hmm. Bernie should have done, first of all, and this is where I think that there's a split among the left, because you got the, you know, the Jimmy Dore school of thought, which is like, you should have called Obama corrupt. You should have done this. You could have should have done that. I'm just bringing up Jimmy because like there's only one Jimmy and there, there is a portion of the left that thinks, well, Bernie, he him not going scorched earth enough is why he lost. Right. But the truth is, if you would have went that route, called Obama corrupt, taken on both parties aggressively, he would have been blown out by 70 points in South Carolina. That's just the truth. Probably. I mean, probably because. Yeah. There's an age difference that we have to examine that I think um, supersedes every other argument. And if you look at the exit polling data, it's really clear to to me, at least, that the divide is is age. It's not by race. It's by age. If you look at every single one of these demographics, you see that same thing coming into play. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you know, I'm like 49. I'm Gen X. I was exposed to some of that rhetoric when I was in um, high school, and I know the generations before me got it way more severely. So that idea that Fidel Castro could have anything redeeming about him isn't going to fly. Right. They've never been exposed to that idea. This is, an, this is a generation that sort of has McCarthyist tendencies because they were told for ages and ages that the communists are bad, there's nothing good to see here, every war we fight is about freedom, it's got nothing to do with protecting business interests abroad, it has nothing to do with protecting the platonomy. So they have that sort of bias built into their brains already and you can't reach them by trying to educate them on the nuances of anything having to do with Cuba. You know what right. I'm saying? It's but, not gonna work. Bottom line, I think progressives need to decide, do you want 100% purity or do you wanna win? Because if you want 100% purity, if you want 100% purity, we're going to continue to lose. So if I was advising Bernie, I would have pulled a Trump. I would have said to Anderson Cooper, excuse me, I'm not here to discuss Fidel Castro. That has nothing to yeah. do with the lives of people struggling in South Carolina right now. I'm not here to discuss uh, A, B, and C that you're trying to distract with. And I am here to explain to you, particularly voters that might not or might have been misinformed on who Bernie Sanders is, if he wants to talk about himself in the third person. But I am here to explain to you, what, do you want to win or do you want to be yeah. comfortable? Because you're speaking to the over 60 crowd. 
watching 60 yeah, Minutes. Yeah, exactly. That's who you need to win. So if I was Bernie, I would have said, and this is the attack he did not make on Biden that I think would have worked with older voters. And other people have brought this up, but you should have said, Hillary Clinton, you know, whatever, bite your tongue, say something nice so it makes older, older voters feel good. But Joe Biden is Hillary Clinton. You want to run a sequel? Same, yes. same, same support for NAFTA, same support for TPP, right. same right. support for the Iraq war. Um, you know, we're running the same candidate four years later expecting a different result. That right. idea should have been put because older voters are pragmatic more than ideology, uh, more than ideological. And they were yeah. being hammered with this corporate media propaganda that Biden's a safe choice. Bernie never put out there. He's Hillary Clinton with different body parts. Obviously, say it a little uh, more classy, but he's got a wor- he's got a longer record than Secretary Clinton. They therefore the same. He has a worse record, really, in some areas. They worked on the TPP together as Vice President right. and Secretary of State, and Trump is going to do the same exact thing he did to Secretary Clinton, to Vice President Biden, and Biden cannot answer for any of it. In fact, by Secretary Clinton, to her credit, at least said I was wrong on X, Y, and Z. Joe Biden's standing here saying I was right on the crime. Oh, no, he's doubling down on all of it. Yeah. But you need Joe, Joe Biden is continuing to double down. I mean, this morning he's tweeting out support for the Venezuelan coup and attacking Trump from the right. It's like remarkable. But that kind of call it contrast or whatever, that's not going to turn people off. That's going to make people think. Somebody said to me, this is the quote of this story. Um, Quote, I don't, not this, but I'm, gonna, it's, I'm getting to it. I don't think Bernie ever felt comfortable owning the branding of that. Uh, the branding of, I am Bernie Sanders, pragmatic politician, in addition to being a democratic socialist. Uh, and one of Bernie Sanders' very high-level campaign staffers said to me, if Bernie would have said in 2016, fine, I don't care about your emails, but what I want are your Goldman Sachs speeches, and here's an ad showing people who lost their relatives or limbs in the Iraq war, I think that Bernie might have become president. So there was an overwhel- overwhelming number of staffers I spoke to that just said simply, you know, he, what can you do? The campaign could do everything they want, but if the man just refuses to do it, if he refuses to take off the gloves, you can't force him. And p- yeah. part of it also, and this, you know, I'm not, di- I'm not saying anything that hasn't been out there. Chris Hedges has said some of this. Uh, part of it was uh, several high-level campaign staffers told us there was also a fear of uh, kind of a Ralph Naderization fear prevalent in Bernie's mind. He truly believes Trump is the most dangerous president of modern history. As such, he expressed to many high-level staffers his, his desire to defeat Trump at all costs, which meant not tearing down Biden to the point where he would be blamed for his defeat, uh, akin to Ralph Nader 20 years later. Quote, he was totally consumed by not being the one to get blamed for Trump getting a second term. Which, Tina, I mean, I mean, Crystal on the Hill just did it. But there's a Hill story now blaming him for not being strong enough for Biden, for not giving Biden. I, yes, I think that's part of my cussing. I, I think that's totally ridiculous. Yeah. No, go on. I think it's, it's ridiculous. Why would you blame Bernie for that? Look, they're going to blame him one way or the other. They're going to. I think Biden is an incredibly weak candidate. I don't see how he beats Trump, even with everything that Trump's doing now, which is bad. Like, he keeps... His, every fuck up that Trump makes seems to be worse than the previous. 
And even now, I'm not convinced that Biden could win. He's a terrible candidate. So He's worse than Clinton. So you're not buying into the narrative that it's over? No, Biden. I'm not buying it at all. I think it's ridiculous. I think, if anything, Bernie has done, gone too far to help him in many ways. Because Biden, is, I mean, to be fair, Biden is up by like 12 to 13 points in national polls. Yeah, he is. But that doesn't mean he'll win. Right. No, I agree. <laughs> I, I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced. I'm not. Well, I'm only I'm, I'm, I, I'm only looking at the the uh, swing states and the media is not covering exactly. it. But Trump is up in Michigan, Wisconsin and other swing states with ads on NAFTA and Biden, which Bernie never did. Uh, the crime bill. Right. That's smart. That's so true. everything that Bernie refused to do, Trump is now going to do times 10. Uh, the, yeah. The other thing is, frankly. I'm not convinced. <laughs> Tina, I am not a big predictor. Uh, there's something telling me he's going to pick somebody like Condoleezza Rice as his vice president. I really think Joe Biden is going to double and triple down on, you know, restore the soul of the nation. Let's bridge the divide. I don't care that she's a warmonger. You know, I don't care. She's a neocon. But you know what? No, that none of that would surprise me because he's obviously more concerned about winning these Republicans that don't like Trump than he is about the progressive vote. He's made that super clear. He's doing nothing to win Bernie Sanders voters over. That's the problem I have. He says he wants them, that we're supposed to just hand him his votes. But what is he doing to earn them? Right. Exactly. I don't care. You know, Biden is like, I just don't like Biden. I've never liked Biden. I don't understand how he can possibly be our Democratic nominee because he's so weak. But here we are. So I'm not convinced that he, even with the polling up, I'm not convinced he's going to pull it out. I mean, people said the same thing about Trump at this time. And I was very worried. I remember saying when Bernie Sanders lost the primary back in uh, 2016, Trump could very well end up winning this election. And I will also say this one last thing, and I think this might be a little bit controversial, but I'm not convinced that Trump is worse than George Bush. I think when you look Which Bush? at those two, George, yeah, George Bush. Which one? Oh, son, George W. Sorry, let me let me clarify. Oh, I'll say emphatically, I don't think I I think this is horrendous revisionism. I think George W. Bush okay. is 10 times worse than Donald Trump. So you and I are 100% on the same page. Yeah. I think he's 10,000 times worse. I Every time I say that, though, I get such pushback. Apparently, that's a controversial belief. I don't think it is. I don't. It's not. I think George W. did a hell of a lot more damage than Trump has. I think Trump's more blaringly obvious about what he's doing. He's not trying to hide it in a way or be more polite about it, or he's just out there in the open doing what he's doing. So I think that might be a little bit more offensive to a lot of folks. But if you really look at so much of the policy that we have George W. to thank for, he's way worse. Completely agree. I mean, Trump's worse in terms of the outward racism, the environment, no question, he's worse than right. anybody. Uh, but I don't think he's killed half a million Iraqis yet. Uh, no. I don't think he's launched a full-on war yet. Uh, he's maintained, he's, himself, he's maintained yeah. them. Uh, the economic collapse, yes, but that's its not all him. It's bipartisan, this terrible response, it's, yeah. which I want to get into with you in a bit. And bottom line, I mean, George W. Bush, he tried to privatize Social Security, uh, yeah. exploded, the, exploded the deficit. Um, I mean, the quid pro quo and, that and he, by the way, did. by the way, he gets yeah. it. He gets a pass for this. But the bottom line is, I don't think 9-11 would have happened under somebody who paid attention to his briefings. So that's, that's a controversial thing to say, but the bottom line is 9-11 happened because George W. Bush was dicking around at his ranch and not reading memos and not taking anything seriously. So that's, right. that, that's the bottom line. I agree George W. Bush was a hot mess. He was not, not smart, he didn't pay attention, and 
the amount of quid pro quo that he engaged in, in addition to all these other things. I mean, the Patriot Act, we can talk, we can spend three hours talking about the devastation that's caused both for First Amendment and Fourth Amendment rights. Right. I mean, Trump Absolutely. hasn't touched anything to the extent of that. Yes, Trump is awful, but I don't, I think it's sort of hyperbolic to, to, to imagine that he's the worst president we've ever had. I don't agree with that. Uh, but to me, one person said it best, Joe Biden didn't win this primary, it was given. Oh, I agree. 100% agree with that. And I think we're already seeing lessons from local candidates doing the opposite of what Bernie did. And I don't want to like completely shit on Bernie. I mean, he was the front runner at one point. He raised records amounts of money from small dollar donors. He brought in 10, like, you got you got 20 million new people into the political process. He's not a failure. Uh, I'm still, I'm still a Bernie fan, as you can see. From my, from my Heisenberg shirt. Uh, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't be critical. I mean, somebody sent me an email like pissed off that I wrote this story. I'm like, I'm sorry the facts trigger you. Like, <laughs> off. Like, uh, you know, people on Reddit and Facebook are mad that I wrote something critical yeah. about Bernie. Well, do you want to just keep on losing or do you want to learn something? So, I want to learn something. But, but my takeaway, like you see Jamal Bowman, they're running yeah. negative ads against Elliot Engel, seizing on him saying, oh, I don't, you know, I wouldn't care about speaking if I didn't have a primary or I wouldn't care. Remember that clip? He said, I wouldn't yeah, care. No. Where was that from Bernie Sanders when Joe Biden's telling Wall Street donors nothing's going to fundamentally change? Right. You should have been on yeah. the air with that stuff. I agree. Uh, you know, you that's what I meant by saying you need to be a bit of a scrapper if you're going to win an election. Politicians that you, you have to be able to take the gloves off. You can't always be polite. Right. And, you know, this whole well, I don't want to be blamed for Trump winning, then don't run. You're either yeah. in it to win it or you're in right. it to like go up to the line and then not. I mean, the thing that bothered That's me right. the most and I think was the biggest failed opportunity was that one-on-one -on -one debate with no audience. You could see that Bernie was like, it, it was that internal wall that he put up. He was saying to Biden, wait, are you sure you didn't? What was it? Are you sure you didn't write the bankruptcy bill? And Biden's like, no. And then Bernie's again like, are you sure? Like three times. Yeah. No, Bernie, just say. Why are you asking? He's lying. We all know he's lying. Just say. Right? He's lying about defunding Social Security, too. I mean, he was just yeah. lying. Just say, Vice President Biden, with all due respect, you're lying to the American people. That's right. Let him stutter his way through that. Sorry. Uh, the, the bottom line is, you let the, I mean, and Trump, it, it looks bad for Trump right now. I'm not going to lie. But he will have, he will, there's going to be hot times for Trump and bad times for Trump. But when times yeah. get better for Trump, you better believe he's going to excoriate Biden for these. Oh, I was on the front front lines at civil rights sit-ins. I was, you know, I was hanging out with Nelson Mandela and right. I was arrested. All these things uh, palling around with Strom Thurmond, everything that Bernie wouldn't do. Biden, uh, Trump is going to do it. He will do it, and he'll do it in spades. I mean, look at that. Um, the ad that he ran about Nancy Pelosi's refrigerator. When I first saw that, I thought, this is my point blank response to that. I literally thought that that was a Shahid Buttar ad against Nancy Pelosi. And it wasn't until I got to the end of the ad and I saw that it was Trump and I was like, oh, shit. Right. <laughs> yeah. 